G'day friends, my name's Pete Stacey and it's a privilege to look at God's Word together. I had a birthday fairly recently and my kids, what do they get? Their old dad, middle-aged, you know, something to cheer him up for his birthday. Well, my oldest daughter Jo and her husband Johnny got me this big lump of uh, Perspex and I uh, thought maybe it's a paperweight then I realised, no, it's a whopping magnifying glass, look at that. My first reaction was, um, how rude. <laughs> and then I started looking things. And it's like, oh, wow, look at the detail. You can kind of look at your skin. Well, oh, that's a bit scary, actually. You can see all the imperfections. Uh, and then I realized, that's what it must be like for God as he looks at our heart. He can just see everything. He sees all the details. He sees all the imperfections. He sees all those aspects of character that are just missing altogether. Uh, but best of all, what God has done for us is that he's given us and done everything necessary for our lives to be repaired. Uh, so let's uh, ask him as we come to his word to help us see details in this passage and understand what he's saying to us for our benefit. Let's pray. Loving Father, our sin so often blinds us and we fail to see your gracious hand at work in our lives. We fail to see our sin, we fail to understand your word, we fail to obey what we do understand. And for all this, we ask your forgiveness. As we look at your word together now, please help us to see you more clearly and love you more deeply and obey you more fully. We ask this in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, we've jumped into this passage at chapter 16 because we're following through the line of David and as you heard in the reading, David has just been chosen and anointed as the future king of Israel. And verse 7 really is the key verse. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. It's not a bad summary of the book as a whole uh, so far. So before we drill into the detail here, let me give a little bit of an overview. And I want to highlight some things that will help us understand what we're looking at today more fully. And now the book of Samuel begins at a similar time as Ruth, uh, perhaps a decade or two later. It was a tumultuous time in Israel's history where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Imagine how bad that would be. I mean, in Australia, just for 24 hours even, everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. Judges ruled over tribal groups and led them in localised battles and the worship of, of God was in disarray, except for a few individuals like Boaz and, and the parents of this uh, bloke Samuel. We'll meet them uh, briefly uh, in a moment. But, but first I want to highlight some major transitions for the Israelites that we see across 1 and 2 Samuel. Originally one book, but they didn't fit on one scroll. So two scrolls, and we've got two books now. Um, Israel changes. Uh, from being a loose coalition of tribal groups to a unified nation. Their warfare changes from local battles to protect themselves to large-scale national military operations that expand their borders. And Israel's worship of God changes from fragmented and half-hearted to centralised, organised, disciplined and devoted. What made the difference? A king. Uh, the book opens with a 
childless woman doing all she can to trust God in her difficult circumstances. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Her name this time is Hannah, and she does the right thing. Instead of being bitter and bottling up her frustrations and her pain, she pours it all out, not on those around her, but on God in earnest prayer. And can I say how much better our lives and our families would be if we all learned to imitate this kind of behaviour? The songwriter said these words, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Well, in God's kindness, he hears Hannah's earnest prayer and blesses her with a son. And then in an act of extraordinary faith and self-sacrifice, she dedicates him to the Lord from birth. And by the time he is weaned, she leaves him with the old priest to live and grow and learn and serve in the tabernacle. She leaves him there. And as she does, she prays a prayer in chapter 2 that introduces all the, the key spiritual themes of the book. Now, it's a moving prayer. We haven't got time to look at it today, but I encourage you to read it and reflect on it during the week. It's fabulous. She says that God knows our hearts and ways or judges our deeds. God opposes the proud and arrogant and lifts up the brokenhearted. Despite human sinfulness, God is still working out his plans. And fourthly, he will give strength to his anointed king. Now, this is striking because at this point, Israel does not yet have a king. But inspired by God's Holy Spirit, she's speaking prophetically. And so these themes are explored and illustrated throughout the whole book. And in fact, the whole Bible, as we see those points on the screen, they remind us of lots of Bible verses in both the Old and New Testaments. God knows all our hearts. God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. God works everything according to his plan. God's king will rule. It's worth reflecting on personally and prayerfully. We see these truths play out at a personal level in the first instance in the life of Hannah. After she gave Samuel to the Lord, we're told, the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. It's a beautiful picture. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. This humble woman is lifted up. We see it as God deals with Eli, the priest, who failed to restrain his wicked sons. They were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the nation, but instead they abused their position and the people they were supposed to serve. And God took away not just their ministry, but their very lives as well. What a graphic reminder to all of us to persevere in the hard work of training our children in the ways of the Lord and in the harder work of disciplining them when they rebel. And friends, please pray for John and for myself and all the ministry leaders to do the hard work of teaching God's word faithfully and to have the courage and wisdom to know when and how to confront sinful patterns of behaviour. 
uh, then gets worse. Next, we see the whole nation failing to trust God and he humbles them by allowing them to be defeated by their enemies. At the same time, we also see God raising up Samuel as a faithful and courageous young man who's willing to speak God's word. And soon all Israel looks to him, for a while anyway. When he's getting old, they ask Samuel to give them a king. We're down in chapter 8 by now. Now, it wasn't wrong to ask for a king. As we saw last week, a king for God's people was actually God's plan all along. But the problem, what was wrong, was their reason, their motivation for asking for a king. Listen to their words. We want a king over us. Then we will be, and here's their motivation, like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted easy street. They wanted comfort. They wanted security. And they placed their hope in a person instead of the living God. God sums it all up when he says to Samuel, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now, the rejection of God did not stop him from being their king. It simply positioned them as his enemies, guilty of treason. Friends, let us not do the same. At God's command, Saul anoints Samuel. A wonderful choice in the people's eyes. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. We still use that phrase today, don't we? Things look good for a short time, but pride creeps in. And uh, it's not long before Saul falls into sin and God opposes him as a result. When Samuel delivered God's verdict to Saul, the words must have really stung. Your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. This is a story of replacement, isn't it? After his dismissal as Australia's Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam said, One day you're a rooster, the next day you're a feather duster. Seems pretty apt here as well. What about you and me? Well, over the last few weeks, we've learned a lot about godly character and how to proceed in times of hardship and testing. But this is a good reminder to be careful how we proceed in times of success and blessing. The sin of pride is damaging in so many ways. Let me just give you two. Firstly, it tempts us to trust ourselves instead of God, which is kind of understandable, but totally illogical, and it just hurts us and other people. Secondly, it means our sense of self-worth depends on being successful. And we crumple if our circumstances change. Friends, the way we respond to God should not change whether we're in hardship or success, whether we're in testing or blessing. Stay humble. Stay the course. Keep trusting him. Obey him and delight in him. 
in the end that that frees us to be able to experience God's peace and contentment and joy regardless of our circumstances. And that's the sort of young man David was. He was the one God referred to in Samuel's words a moment ago, a man after God's heart. And so we arrive at today's passage. God says, I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And having just finished the book of Ruth, this is where we get excited because Boaz and Ruth lived in Bethlehem and Jesse is their grandson. This wonderful plan of God's all coming together. We can see God's hand at work in all of the twists and turns of individual lives, as well as whole nations to bring about his grand purposes. Poor old Samuel, he mourned for Saul. He thought Saul was the one. But he needed to learn that God's plan doesn't die with the death of any man or woman, no matter how great they are. Saul's time was done. God had chosen a new king. That's interesting to note the amount of fear going on here. Fear flourishes under insecure leadership like that of Saul. In verse 2, Samuel is afraid of Saul. God reassures him and gives him a plan. In verse 4, the people of Bethlehem are afraid of Samuel. Well, Samuel reassures them and lets them know about God's plan. And so there's this very serious ceremony for choosing a new king. And you can imagine Jesse with all of his sons lined up. They've been consecrated and there they are in the firelight and the the smell of roasted sacrifice. And verse 6, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Samuel thinks he knows what's going to happen. He's pretty confident. And God who hears and he sees even our thoughts, graciously corrects Samuel with these words. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. It simply means he's not the chosen one, nothing more than that. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, we don't know if everyone heard God's voice, But the outcome was obvious. Eliab was not the one. Move on to number two. Nope. Number three. On and on it goes. Right down the line. One after the other. It turns into a debacle. The very man God has chosen has been so overlooked by everybody that he wasn't even invited. It's so easy to be smug as a a reader. I mean, it seems hilarious. But it was desperately embarrassing and shameful for all concerned. And if I'm honest, if I was there, I would have fitted right in. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. God's words are both a statement of fact and an invitation to more godly thinking. Our natural inclination is to judge by outward appearances. That's just the way it is. But with God's help, we do not have to give in to such superficial judgment. God sees the heart. And if we take the time, 
we begin to see the heart too. We saw this in the beautiful unfolding love story of Ruth and Boaz. And I think this has relevance in all kinds of situations, church leadership, for example. But in our culture, I think one of the uh, areas that this is particularly applicable is in choosing a life partner. Our culture overemphasizes outward appearance and undervalues and underdevelops true character. And when it comes to a, a life partner, we're often swayed by outward appearance and in danger of overlooking true character. Well, David was God's choice, even though he was overlooked by his father and he was out there doing the work of a servant by caring for the sheep. Years of mundane service. But it wasn't wasted time. It was training. Listen to how Psalm 78 connects the two. God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. How wonderfully encouraging. If I can just apply it to ourselves for a moment, no matter what our life circumstances are right now, God's promise is to work it all for our good if we'll love and trust him. It's wonderful, isn't it? And then again, I think the narrator wants us to see some irony in David's outward appearance. Verse 12. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. If you're good looking, uh, don't uh, feel like God overlooks you. you know, sometimes we think that God just looks out for the under, underdog. Uh, remember our key verse? People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Whatever you look like on the outside, make it your goal to be beautiful on the inside. Beautiful in character and in integrity. That's what God delights to see. It's a lovely thought, isn't it? It's a good intention. The reality is we all fall so far short. Even Samuel, you know, the most outstanding godly leader of that time, he failed. Saul failed. Later we'll see that David fails. Our hearts are plagued with pride and insecurity and shallow judgment of others and the tendency to not trust and follow God and so much more. We're like Israel. We need a king. And friends, God has provided in his son, our Lord Jesus, we have the king we need. One who is not only a perfect role model and leader, but one who gave his life on the cross to pay for our failure so that we can be forgiven by God. Friends, this is a king worth following. He took our punishment as God's enemy so we could receive his position as God's child with heaven as our eternal home. Friends, this is a king worth following. As we come to the last verse, uh, it's exciting. David's anointed and the Spirit of the Lord comes powerfully upon him 
And we just want to know what happens next. And that's what we're looking at next week. Don't miss it.